Welcome to the Accor Report in Weekly Review. This is our opportunity to come before you once a week to uh, go over the top 10 articles that you as the readers of the Accor Report have chosen by just reading articles. And we just count the numbers and they become the top 10. And uh, this is an opportunity for us to sort of tease out what they are, to encourage you to go on the Aquila Report to read them. Uh, for those who don't come on a regular basis, on a daily basis, as we post articles, uh, then that one week reminder of the newsletter uh, encourages you to take a look, not only at the top 10, but to look at the others that have been posted. And so it's always our privilege, me as Dominic Aquila, and along with Paul Harrell, uh, to offer you this uh, podcast of the Aquila Report and Weekly Review. So, Paul, another yes, week sir. has gone by, and we're ready to look and see. Yes. And we have a good good mixture. Some of them uh, can be sort of united uh, together, but we'll we'll go see that as we go through these articles. And um, so, we it's interesting what the uh, readers have on their mind. Usually, it's something that's more of a current uh, affair and a, or matter. Uh, the first one is uh, very intriguing. It was um, an article that was on uh, Barry Weiss's um, uh, pa- uh, blog, and it's called My University Sacrificed Ideas for Ideology, So Today I Quit. Uh, and this is reading uh, written by Peter uh, Bogosian, who uh, taught at Portland State University uh, for a long time. And uh, because of certain things that happened, and he explains in the letter, uh, what happened uh, that he just sent a letter of resignation. So basically he says, uh, I'm the more I spoke out against the illiberalism that has swallowed Portland State University, the more retaliation I faced. Uh, just in one of the pull quotes we have, I wish I could say that what I w- I'm describing hasn't taken a personal toll, but it has taken exactly the toll it was intended to an increasingly intolerable working life and without the protection of tenure. This isn't about me. This is about the kind of institutions we want and the values we choose. Uh, every idea has advanced human, uh, every idea that has advanced human uh, freedom has always and without fail been initially condemned. As individuals, we often seem incapable of remembering this lesson, but that is exactly what our institutions are here. Uh, here for to remind us that the freedom to question is our fundamental right. Uh, educational institutions should remind us that right uh, right is also our duty. So basically, it's a plea from uh, Dr. Bogosian about uh, the fact that this university is intended to explore ideas, uh, differences of opinion and philosophies and so forth. And um, what he found that is that no matter what he tried to say, how he said it, uh, even referring to some things historically, that there was opposition that was coming from the sort of the cancel culture um, mentality that has arisen in so many places in our culture, not only in education, but in government and other places. So it, uh, it's just interesting to uh, see uh, what can happen when we forget um, uh, the the right to explore, to ask questions, uh, to make sense of things that are happening uh, in the world. And the university setting uh, is the exact place for that to be, uh, being able to do that. So this letter from uh, Dr. Bogosian really 
uh, helps sort of set a scene and it's sort of becoming too commonplace probably in our culture at this time. Uh, I would think you would agree with that. Uh, oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, this is in Portland. And so you say, you know, well, we're not surprised, but this is something that's happening, you know, all across the country. And uh, practically you wonder, you know, why are we going to continue to send young people to these types of institutions where, you know, freedom is really not allowed. It's discouraged. And he even talked about that. He said in his letter that, you know, any time in history when movements are uh, supporting, you know, freedom, uh, they are at first derided and resisted. He did a lot, though. I mean, it took him a while to give up this fight and finally resign. He was interesting. And I remember this back when I was <clears throat> uh, covering the, 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 you know, the, the hard news. I, uh, I thought it was pretty interesting what he and a bunch of his colleagues did. They were able to take the logic, the <clears throat> flawed logic of all of these, uh, this the wokeness and everything else, and get these absurd papers. They wrote some absurd papers and actually got them published in peer-reviewed journals. Um, this is what, from his resignation letter where he writes, I continue to believe, perhaps naively, that if I expose the flawed thinking – on which Portland State's values, new values, were based, I could shake the university from its madness. So he essentially published these satirical-type articles, also pretty funny in a way. In 2018, he writes, I co-published a series of absurd and morally repugnant peer-reviewed articles in journals that focused on issues of race and gender. In one of them, we argued that there was an epidemic of dog rape at dog parks and proposed that we leash men the same way we leash dogs. Our purpose was to show that that certain kinds of scholarship are based not on finding truth, but on advocating social grievances. This worldview is not scientific and it is not rigorous. Administrators and faculty were so angered by the papers that they published an anonymous piece in the student paper and Portland State filed formal charges against me. Their accusation was research misconduct based on the absurd premise that the journal editors who accepted our intentionally deranged articles were human subjects. Hmm. And he says that I was found guilty of of not receiving approval to experiment on human subjects. So they create this phony system of justice to condemn him when he was simply trying to point out that these, the, the, you're, you know, they, they are intellectually dishonest. They've, we've gone so far beyond science, uh, if you want to use that word, and uh, we've just given way to, you know, human madness. Yeah, uh, that it's so right. I remember when those uh, things were came out, and actually they – blew the whistle on themselves. In fact, they didn't blow the whistle. They just said after they had published it a few times and peer review uh, magazines took them, uh, they said, do you realize what you've done? That uh, just we wrote a bunch of gibberish. Uh, They made no sense. And people got upset. And of course, the human subjects here were the readers of the Mac. Well, the um, editors of the magazine and the readers of it uh, are claiming at least the alleged readers of it. And so they were the human subjects that took them to court that how dare you even uh, do that. So when you show the fallacy through humor and humor is a good way to uh, do that, to highlight the, um, you know, the difficulty of really coming to the conclusions that so many people have come to. So it, uh, it, you know, really did put him on the mark, but he, others had done it. In fact, throughout the history, of the world, it, uh, humor 
uh, and writings like this have uh, taken place um, to be, you know, uh, in order to, to show the absurdity of, uh, of somebody's propositions. So, with to, but it just is a indication, though, of our where our culture is now, right now, at, the, at least at the university level, then not everywhere, but at least in many of our institutions, that you really can't have a cogent conversation uh, without doing violence. Uh, right. Like and someone's going to be violence. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. to your point, I mean, you know, the I, I would the overarching point that I've observed in culture today is, you know, laughter tends to bring people together. And so you have, you know, one side of the culture that is more and more against comedy, against laughter and against absurdity, especially when they're the butt of the jokes. But when I I think of this, I think of, you know, the screw tape letter C.S. Lewis when yeah. he claims in there that, you know, uh, the the darkness and evil forces they really don't like laughter they don't like when people no. you know genuinely laugh because they don't understand it no well that's right well it shows the absurdity of their of their thinking uh that's one of the reasons the babylon b is probably one of the most uh, sought after sites exactly. uh, you know those editors uh, amazing when they come up with all the articles because it is based on uh, just taking what has happened and then showing where it can lead to. And it says it in a very, uh, and what most of those articles that uh, Babylon B writes are like four, four paragraphs. And in that's four paragraphs with a great title, they capture the essence of uh, the absurdity of what they've been writing. So anyway, that's number one article to show what we already know is happening in the, um, you know, in, in the, culture with reference to university that it's no longer a place where you go to explore ideas uh but it's a place where you're it's more for indoctrination and that's unfortunate now flipping over to number two uh it moves us in a different direction with uh going to the church and the difficulties at least that have been uh, alleged or found out by uh, doing some studies that um at the Articles entitled, This is Not What I Signed Up For, Unsettling Exodus of Pastors Leaving the Ministry. And so the factors that uh, pastors are struggling under this, uh, the, the pressures of what is expected of them in the life of the church. So we write here, a professor from the University of Dubuque Theological Seminary uh, gave his thoughts as to why he believed the trend of pastors leaving ministry is occurring. Uh, the, the author is uh, James, uh, Christopher James. And he said, in addition to being a hard job with mediocre pay, many pastors don't think it's worth to try and to maintain dying churches and are curious uh, what the Christian life and leadership uh, might look like outside the clergy role. It's part of a wider unraveling and reconfiguration of church. Uh, White replied uh, uh, to Professor James, I think you're on to something. So in other words, what they're saying is the high, statistically it shows that high numbers of pastors leaving the ministry um, are an exodus that concerned uh, pastors, coaches, and co-founder uh, Dan White. A place uh, He runs a center that focuses on offering healing for tired and traumatized leaders. Now, the, the, there are probably more, a number of more reasons than what this article points out, but it does highlight one of the things that is obvious is that um, individuals who are seeking a pastor and feeling some kind of calling to it or seeing it as a vocation, if nothing else, uh, are leaving. Uh, one of the trends that I would say is it would have been 
good to be able to sort of highlight uh, out of this the difference with, um, you know, what, what brand of theology people might have, what the, they did include a number of uh, mix of denominations, Baptist, Lutheran, Pentecostal, Anglican, Methodist, Mennonite, and it mentions, and specifically Christian Reformed Church, um, but it just listed the labels with the others. So um, it says only nine of them were evangelical pastors, just 10 out of the 28 mentioned were bivocational. So I'm wondering what effect, you know, theology has in your view of calling uh, there, and that at least that part of it needs to be considered. But it's it is obvious it, uh, the trends are there that uh, pastoring today is not an easy job because of the expectation that is placed on pastors from the congregation, uh, from the culture, uh, what you can do, what you can't do. And I think it's been true for centuries, but uh, I think we just do more evaluating now and and get guesswork. But being a pastor basically is a uh, a tough position I, I want to say a little bit more on that but i'll give you as a lay person the yeah. opportunity to uh, uh sort of reflect on that well so this is the the part of the article that stood out to me and then i do have a question for you dominic as a shepherd as a pastor uh it says a former pastor of 30 years also wrote i'm one of those after 30 years i felt god was calling me out of paid ministry into the marketplace i'm convinced that many many pastors have lost the ability to speak of the same language of those outside of the church uh, so i'd love to get you to react to that but i'd also love to ask that you know it is as the culture that you know everyday lay people the sheep have to go out in and maybe the pastors don't necessarily they're not as involved in it right they're not they're not going to the workplace they're not seeing i mean they're they're seeing the degrade of the culture they're reading the same headlines or or witnessing the same events that we're all witnessing but they're not necessarily out there enveloped in it every single day and having to um for lack of a better word just get beat up you know or, or just feel beat up and are, and they're watching all of this happen and they're living it maybe more so, and this is my question to you, maybe more so than the vocational pastor is, and maybe that's where some of this disconnect might be coming from? Just an honest question to you. Okay, uh, I'm, I'm not really sure. I think it, it the, I mean, there. anytime you deal with any issue, there are always multiple um, reasons. It's not just one, one thing. But one of the things is, that does stand out very high is expectation. What is the expectation of the task and what is the expectation of people. And so one of the times what happens is the clash of the expectations of what the pastor perceives, the pastoral role is, and what the congregation, uh, most of the congregation might perceive. And the so that expectation. So um, I think that what I, what I usually tell uh, my students is that graduating, getting ready to graduate, and other counseling that I do with uh, pastors and churches they're looking, is there there, there are at least two things that are critical uh, in uh, beginning a, a ministry somewhere that if it's, you know, get if this is done, these two things are done, I think that you, the likelihood of having a fairly decent ministry will be good if it's accomplished. And that is, one is that it's, ministry is relational. Uh, the expectations of pastor will be uh, someone they could talk to, that he's not going to be, you know, cold ice, uh, and uh, that he will shepherd and pastor 
uh, the people be available to them and caring for them. So developing uh, a, a relationship and uh, that you're the uh, people at that point point have an expectation. Well, the pastor is the professional who's supposed to come in and fix everything. And uh, so we usually lay that on him. But if he can build a relationship and it's what I call uh, the analogy of making deposits in the emotional bank account. And before you write checks, uh, which will bounce if you don't have enough, uh, not, you have made enough deposits, then it'll come back on you. So the checks will bounce. So uh, make enough emotional deposits, spend time getting to know them, uh, the people serving them, ministering to them, caring about them. And then when it's time to uh, move things along, then you you can have checks that won't bounce because they, they will uh, respect you because they know you now. Number two is uh, what they saying in the pulpit, because the other expectation is that there'll be something that will be helpful. And this is where it can get really uh, bogged down because uh, we're the debate today in the church and probably every generation, but we, what we're going through today is what I would call between the, uh, the theological versus the, the therapeutic. And we're going to come up with a therapeutic thing here, article in just a moment. And the idea here is if you uh, see, try and resolve everybody's problems by when you're preaching to have a lot of how-to sermons and you see the congregation, when you look at them as sort of on a sofa, on a couch, you know, the counseling couch, and, and you're going to give them the soothing words that will help them through another week, then that's going to be therapeutic. On the main, but at that point, you don't give them any grist. There's nothing really uh, hardcore there that they can hold on to. Uh, if you start theologically, that is biblically, open up the scriptures and teach what it says, uh, then that leads to therapy because the word itself is a benefit to them, uh, to the people. So I think that's part of the uh, problem. But the I think the largest issue is that the one of the larger issues, I'm not going to put it as the largest, but it's what do we expect you to do? You're the professional. This is the problem. You fix it. Uh, now, if he tries to do that, though, without their permission, so this is the conundrum, then they get all upset because, well, you're acting as a you know mini dictator. So there's all those kinds of issues that just are interacting. But this has been happening since the beginning of the New Testament. And there's nothing new that's happening today. A person who really genuinely feels called of God from uh, as, a, as called as explained and defined in the scriptures, uh, it knows that he's going to face a difficult time. And if we want an a, example of one whom God really called in the ministry that wasn't, quote, successful, because we have the whole idea that you're supposed to be successful, like someone in, in, that starts a business is successful, is we we'll go to Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah was called, and from the very beginning of the book, in chapter one, uh, the God says to Jeremiah, I called you from the womb, even before you were born, and I called you to this task. And what was the task to which he called them? To deal with a very hard-hearted Israel. Uh, the people were not listening to God, but yet God still loved them. You're my covenant people. He pursued them. And so, Jeremiah, I'm calling you to tell them that, and continue to speak to them the truth, uh, giving it lovingly, giving it covenantally. 
and so forth to the point that when you get to about chapter 20 in Jeremiah's book, he, Jeremiah actually has, I guess, the, uh, the audacity to actually say, God, you deceived me. I don't think I have ever said that about God. Maybe I thought it, and of course, God knows my thoughts too. But I don't think I've ever been that pointed about it, no matter how hard things have been. He says, you deceived me. I am deceived, and you deceived me because you told me, you called me, and I expected this, that, and the other. And then so he wanted to hang it up right then. So at that point, he would have. But then he said one thing why he couldn't. He says, but when I considered doing that, I could not do it because the, your word was like fire in my belly. And in other words, God called me. He gave me that. And no matter what the results were, uh, the call was still legitimate. And I was to be faithful in doing that. And that is a just a very poignant way of looking at it. Someone has a real call. If you look at his vocation, uh, then you fall apart just like any other job. And then just go get some, another job. If you call, it's a real calling sense, as difficult as it is, then it's like, Jeremiah, how can I run away from this thing? The, your word is like firing my bones in my belly. I can't get rid of it, so I've got to keep going. So you really didn't deceive me, Lord. I don't no, know if that helps the ear. No, answer. no, that's that's that, that's interesting. Matter of fact, that theme is going to be echoed in another article coming up that yes. was written by Johnny Erickson Tata. Absolutely, it is. So uh, we'll leave it with this uh, word of exhortation and encouragement. Read the article and then see what you can do to uh, smooth the way for your pastor and definitely uh, pray for him. uh, Give, you know, and and, uh, encourage him uh, as he's walking. But yes, because he's at the vortex of dealing with sinners. Uh, he's a sinner, your congregation sinners. We're redeemed, but we we can still act out of our sin. And so it can be a hard thing. So pray for him. Number uh, three um, gives probably, it's, even though it happened, this is another one that's happened in the university, but uh, it is an example of if you take a position uh, from the pulpit, then the pastor can have a problem. Now this kind of time it's, the title is Asbury Sermon on Therapeutic Self Promotes LGBTQ Twitter Rage. That's quite a mouthful here. But basically, the subtitle is Asbury Theological Seminary President. Asbury's in Kentucky, and it's affiliated with the Wesleyan Arminian School, Wesleyan Holiness Group. Uh, Asbury Theological Seminary President Dr. Tim uh, Timothy Tennant is facing social media backlash for preaching an Orthodox sermon at Asbury Convocation for the opening of school year 2021-22. So the results uh, the that he did is that he titled his uh, convocation, which is the formal opening of a school year in um, in the academic setting. Um, he titled the restor- the the title was the restoration of personhood. Uh, the sermon referenced a conversation between Tennant and the late Asbury theologian Dr. Dennis Kinlaw. Uh, Tennant, as he explained, asked Law uh, the um, what the most pressing theological issue of the age was, and Kinlaw, instead of a long-winded answer, responded with one word: personhood. So Tennant proposed. Uh, that the overarching problem with the spirit of the age is that uh, 
It is has a severely misguided notion of what it means to be a human being. In particular, he was referencing the work of the Grove City College professor, Carl Truman, who we've talked about before in terms of his book that has become uh, number one seller, uh, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individualism, and the Road to Sexual Revolution. So using that as the branching off point or the starting point, then uh, Dr. Uh, uh, Tennant uh, preached this uh, convocation message to open the school year as a call to uh, look at yourself. These are the students sitting there, th a couple thousand students in the new year. Uh, how are you gonna view yourself? Uh, what is this institution gonna do for you to help you come to grips with who you are as God made you. And uh, so referring to some of the things that uh, Dr. Truman said in his book, uh, he gave it. Well, what happened was the some of the uh, students in particular one, as he was talking about it, took uh, umbrage and he got up and walked out of chapel and he uh, uh, you know, mentioned some, or wrote some tweets uh, he says, uh, hey, as at Asbury Seminary, maybe uh, you don't know that your entire convocation sermon from the president centered on lambasting LGBTQ people. Uh, you're doing worse than just making it dangerous for me to be on campus. And so it was written by a student who saw, sees himself as a, a same-sex attracted individual. So he says, I walked out of chapel. I do not have to sit under evil disrespect. And here's what we were talking about with the first article. Uh, here's a, a cogent and clear and reasonable presentation of personhood. Uh, what does the scripture have to say? What is the historic uh, Christian position? And this individual takes umbrage of that, walks out and begins uh, tweeting. And of course, that raised up a great storm uh, against uh, the president. Now, he didn't back down. He stood his ground. But Nonetheless, there was a great deal of fallout from it. So that this article is just referring to that. Well, and what's what's interesting here, I mean, is it certainly hit the nail on the head that the, the gentleman who identifies as a side B Christian going to Asbury and it's just the first I think his first year, um, his, his name I, on Twitter is Elijah, but his handle is at personhood lives or at personhood lives i don't know which which one it is but at personhood so he's you know he he's already made these decisions uh it seems like a lot of his identity is in this new age view of who you are you know a person uh is something that you can define yourself in a way and so you know he says he walked out and then he gets a message though from uh, a, a lesbian uh, clergy uh, person named Laura uh, M. Uh, Chiefitz, and uh, she writes, Hi, I'm sorry I don't know you, and I know a really gay-affirming place isn't for everyone, but I love working at VU Divinity because we are queer and trans-inclusive, and in administration, anything mostly run by lesbians is just going to be better organized prayers and love your way so. hmm. it it is well this is the uh you know where it comes to and that then drives the narrative and the challenge is what 
what uh, Dr. Tennant was saying is the President Asbury, that here is the a biblical, historic, orthodox, evangelical explanation of personhood. Uh, so operating from the principles of what God has done, how he made us, what the scripture has to say. But instead, you, your personal narrative uh, is supposed to trump anything else that uh, we believe. So it's a good article to read uh, to understand the kinds of pressure points that are happening individually as well as in uh, various cultures. Well, we can transition from that to someone who um, faced um, difficulty in her life. And we're talking about Johnny Erickson Tata. Most of us know her, her story that around the 16 or so, she uh, dove into a lake and it was uh, more sh shallow, more shallow than she thought. And so she uh, or effect, it affected her neck and her spine so that she was paralyzed from that point. And so the title of this is 10 words that changed everything about my suffering, which is quite an amazing assertion anyway. So uh, the point is that when this happened, she had a very close friend. She was, they were in high school. Uh, his name was Steve. And she refers to Steve in her book with the first book that she wrote uh, as she was coming to grips with the fact that she would most likely be uh, paralyzed for the rest of her life be a quadriplegic and so what you know what would she do uh, she was a believer uh he steve was a believer and he even references and uh, johnny mentions it in this um section that steve really didn't know you know what to do uh in fact he says steve would tell me uh, later uh, johnny when i came across uh from what i when i sat across from you that night the night that they sort of had tried to figure out what's going on here. I was sobered. I mean, I had never met a person my age in a wheelchair. And I knew that the Bible, what the Bible said about your questions and a dozen passages came to mind from studying in church, but sitting across from you, I realized I had never test driven those truths on such a difficult course. Nothing worse than a D in the in algebra had ever happened to me, but I looked at you and kept thinking, if the Bible can't work in this paralyzed girl's life, then it never was for real. So, Johnny, I cleared my throat and I jumped off the cliff. And then he she goes on to explain what happened next. OK, so we got to those 10 words. So after he thought it through some more, he came back. And as they were talking because of their close relationship, they could talk honestly back and forth with one another. Uh, she says the sentence hit me. And there the were one particular sentence, but there's the 10 words coming up here. Uh, its it simplicity made it sound trite, but nonetheless enticed me like an enigmatic riddle. It seemed to hold some deep, mysterious, tr mysterious truth that piqued my fascination. Tell me more, she said. I want to hear more about, and I was because I was hooked. And here are the words that um, Steve said to her God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. And she said those words began to change her frame of mind or thinking God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. And she teased that out and thought it through. And we see the result in uh, more than 50 years of her life and ministry that she has, uh, you know, been a, such a blessing to the church because of that. what happened to her. It has been a blessing to many other people.
Yeah, it, it, he, she really has. And, and this is a, a great article. You've got to read it. This would be a great article for also, you know, discussion in small in small groups. But, you know, this is the part that really stuck out to me because she highlights how this whole idea that God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves is it is the gospel. We see that in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So she writes, OK, I got it. God permits what he hates. But what about the next part, the part about him permitting awful things in order to accomplish what he loves. I still could not imagine what good and lovely thing would be worth the horrible cost and pain of quadriplegia. When it comes to the old cost versus benefit problem, God first put himself to the test. He willed the death of his own son, but he took no delight in the actual agony. God planned it, but Satan was the instigator. Think of the treason, torture, death, and murder that led up to Christ's crucifixion. How could those awful things be God's will? Yet Judas Iscariot and the whole bunch, including the Romans who nailed Jesus to the tree, did whatever God's hand and God's plan had predestined to take place, Acts 4.28. So God, as much as said to everyone who screamed for Christ's crucifixion, okay, so you guys want to sin? When you do, I'll make certain you do it in a way that maintains your guilt yet performs my will. In short, God steered their devilish scheme to serve his own marvelous ends, a divine plan that would bring good to his people and maximum glory to himself. Uh, And the glorious plan that was worth the horrible cost of the cross was, Steve quietly said, salvation for a world of sinners. I would soon learn how suffering and sin are related. It's a great article. It is. And it's it, it comes to a question that um, that's probably the number one question asked uh, of anything, and especially in times of tragedy and difficulty. And uh, that is why does if God is good, why does he allow evil and all the mayhem that comes from it? And that's something that you, in, in terms of just intellectually, rationally, we know what the scripture says. We some, but times to grasp it and to really be, know how it uh, works out. Uh, here's a testimony that uh, Johnny gives about those ten words that helped her reformulate and to think through how to live it, and uh, all these years be able to share with others. Uh, so it's the the whole thing of theodicy, you know, and where did yeah. evil uh, come from? So. Well, and- and and the, the verse that uh, honestly I I had never you know meditated on or, or, or read I should say um, that she taught she quotes earlier in this whole piece is from Lamentations three thirty two through thirty three where uh, the NIV translation says though he brings grief he will show compassion so great is his unfailing love but then it says for he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to the children of men and so just Take the what might be on the surface an apparent contradiction where it says God brings grief or allows the grief, but he doesn't willingly bring it um, is something that Johnny Erickson Tata says in this piece uh, spoke to her and gave her more information about the character of God to work through this tragic event in her life. Hmm. Okay, well, the um, moving from that uh, is number five, the therapeutic Gnostic Pentecostalism. That's a mouthful as well. Written by uh, Dr. R. Scott Clark, a teacher at Westminster in California, uh, where he says, the Living Faith Church is a small congregation pastored by a husband and wife team. Stephen and Angela Della Cruz, uh, are, they're the couple that 
Pastor, the salacious part of the story is that she was, and in parentheses, is a porn star, and he is a business coach. And apparently this is, you know, struck a number of years ago when they started this uh, church because of her background. And she apparently uh, still continued as a, a porn star and acting in it. And uh, so uh, because of uh, some more recent um, notoriety in this area, uh, Dr. Clark uh, export, explores what is uh, taking place here and uh, what he is um you know, basically saying is that we tend to move in the Christian circles to allow certain things to happen. Uh, and uh, he refers back to something that was written by uh, Christian Smith back in uh, 2009 in his sort of analysis of the youth culture back in that time, where he came up with the phrase that our preaching and teaching in the Christian church and even our practice of it tends to be like a moralistic, therapeutic deism. Okay, so the message is probably moralistic. That remember I said earlier that, that we tend to preach more therapeutically. That is, uh, what elixir do you need? What bromide do you need to get through your day or through the week? And then deism is the idea that God is, there is a God, but he is distant. He is not personal. And uh, every so often when, things get out of hand he'll come in and try and help fix it up but for the most part he's a handoff god so we have basically a man's centered kind of approach so what he is saying now is that what we have with the de la cruz's and their ministry is more of a um, therapeutic gnostic of pentecostalism uh, and that is driving in and he goes on to explain you know more of what that uh, you know, what that mean, you know, the Gnostics were people who, um, were basically, they persevered that, you know, that salvation was sort of like a secret knowledge. You, you got the secret handshake and, um, and it was a very feeling oriented kind of approach, uh, offered a, it was very prominent in the early church. In fact, uh, some scholars say that, uh, when Paul wrote, the Colossian church, that was one of the main themes that he was fighting against, uh, that when John wrote his epistle, the first epistle, that he was also fighting against that, that the everything is, um, uh, that matter is evil, the spiritual life is per, is good, and so we need to sort of jettison uh, everything that is part of our body and our physical experience in order to get into that realm of pure spirit. Anyway, that creates all sorts of tensions and points that are, are part of what Gnosticism is. Anyway, the point that he makes is now that we've come uh, more into an extension of that with this uh, Pentecostal uh, therapeutic Gnostic, uh, uh, Gnost uh, therapeutic Gnosticism, really. Uh, it has an effect on us, and it's because of the nature of the story itself and the circumstances on the ground, and that makes it quite interesting. So uh, this may be something that's coming to a church around the corner from you anytime soon. Yeah, and also, you know, there was it's a small church now, but there's comparisons to, to Joel Osteen and everything else, and so uh, – <laughs> You you never know what's going to be the next mega church. You you got to think with a story like this one, the uh, secular world uh, would be you know would be tempted to promote it. 
you know? Yes. And, and, it, and the church uh, too. And uh, just by the way, recently, I don't know if this was, uh, I don't think that was in the article that there was just another article just came out recently that said they basically Dela Cruz's have separated and she's gone back into uh, the porn industry. So um, the, apparently she's not in, no longer serving as co-pastor with her husband on that. So uh, number six um, by Kevin Carson, uh, where we've uh, covered a number of articles by uh, him uh, in the uh, Cooler Report. And this one deals with that usual phrase, my body, my choice. And uh, here the idea is talking about the science. Uh, So we've heard a lot about that. And so he sort of plays off of that about my body, my choice, usually words that were, uh, as a phrase used with reference to um, abortion. Historically, the words my body, my choice stood for those arguing for women's rights as people in the 1970s fought for the reproductive rights and accessible abortions. Individual groups who used that mantra uh, argued for any woman to have the right to end the pregnancy anytime she wanted to, since it was uh, her body and her choice whether or not uh, to have a baby. So that's based on that uh, notion. So now the question comes up, if we're going to follow the science again, um, then, and it's my body, my choice, then not only is it about abortion, but what about my body, my choice, and follow the science that would work in the area of the vaccinations, since that's a big topic again. We, We hardly go weak, Paul, without us having some uh, COVID-related uh, statement uh, issue uh, that's affecting culture and the church. So uh, if it uh, follows that women can use that mantra of my body, my choice, with reference to something as serious as uh, removing a child from the womb, uh, can we also say it's my body, my choice with reference to uh, vaccination, especially if you're appealing to the science? Uh, without getting into all the details on it, um, it's just trying, again, this is one of those articles that shows if you assume a certain principle for one part of life, can that principle also apply to another part of life? Uh, you can't sort of bifurcate it and make it uh, different. So that here's a person, you know, challenging the notion of the first, not to, because he wants to affirm necessarily the second, but he wants to show the absurdity of what you had taken before. How can you now say you must follow the signs on the other? So it's it's an interesting article from that perspective to challenge how we even arrive at simplistic uh, solutions to major problems. Yeah, and, and the, the subheader, like, you know, later on down in the article when he says, follow Christ and respect the image of God. It's a really good article to just marinate on how the Bible and God's word can direct our opinions and should inform our opinions about all of this stuff. And, yeah, we create these different labels and, and everything else. And, you know, one is used to make the other a hypocrite. You know, you have people on the right now saying, what about what about my body, my choice? It's you know, trying to shake them and saying, well, you know, you want my body, my choice so you can kill your baby. But you don't want my body, my choice, you know, when it actually is my choice about whether or not to put a vaccine in my body. And, you know, 
the it's 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 really maddening, you know, because everybody everybody knows, or at least I've used this analogy before. I mean, if they found a fertilized egg on Mars, okay, the headline the next day in the newspapers would be life, okay, life found on Mars. So this is what Christians have been arguing. Look, life begins at conception. You referenced Jeremiah earlier, Dominic, where you know, talked about, I called you in the womb, I knit you together in the womb. This is what we've been saying from a biblical standpoint. And, you know, we put, you know, we put a label on it. I, there's some, there's, there's plenty of, plenty of folks on the right who have argued, follow the science, follow the science. But even if you go to that realm and you adopt that mantra, follow the science, where does following the science get you when you start trying to tell people that we worship a God who's alive today, who died and rose again three days later. Following the science, if you will, at least our understanding of it, uh, isn't going to get you anywhere. So it, the article is about following Christ and, uh, right. and, and getting, getting beyond these labels. It's, it's really good. In fact, it ends that way. As followers of Christ, politics is not our main thing at all. We must determine to follow Christ and respect the image of God. Leave the mantras, slogans, and models up to others. For us, we love Christ, follow him, and act like Christ to those around us. So that's a good way for it. So realize that that article then is really challenging anybody about any slogans that we use that may um, just be an excuse for taking actions that we feel are, are necessary. Okay, well, number seven is uh, lockdowns and online church, a time to evaluate. Uh, it's a question that Peter Mead writes, uh, taking stock of both the costs and the benefits of what it means to be in Christ and the church's ministry. And this is, like I said, it goes along with the still with the COVID thing in terms of what has happened in our culture since what March of 2020, at least. Um the, and in fact, uh, Peter starts out with that assumption. He says, there are few subjects as controversial as COVID-19. Many churches are feeling the stretch of a full spectrum of views within the congregation. Uh, it certainly feels safer to not venture into writing about the subject, but I feel it's important that we evaluate what we do in the church world, uh, whatever our views of the actual issue may be. So obviously, each context is going to be different. What my church was allowed to do will be different than the rules in your country or state. So the point is that he's not trying to stir up controversy. He's saying, church, listen, listen, just step back, take a deep breath. Let's look at this uh, uh, crisis and uh, the uh, how it's presented itself and the options that we have before us. But his main concern really reflect comes back down to what happens when the church is locked down and the importance that uh, the scripture gives to the assembling of ourselves together, the importance of fellowship and gathering the, uh, the communion of the saints part of our connectedness. And I think that's what he's asking. Maybe it's time now for we've gone, you know, a little over a year, now, a little year and a half now. Uh, let's do some evaluation before we just go on and make sure that we're, uh, you know, we're assessing things well. Ask for the mind of Christ, prayerfully to know how we're going to function on this. I completely agree. And, you know, I've said I've said such before that, you know, I, you, you don't want to you know, <laughs> I'm definitely guilty of this. You don't want to just 
make a blanket statement of condemnation, right? But no. for sure to evaluate, okay? Evaluate what we've done, what we've been through. It's different for every local body. But my, my biggest question has been, what happens when we when this happens again? I mean, I, I know I know that we're at a point now where we have a lot more context, a lot more uh, contradictions from those who were telling us what the truth of the day was. Okay. And I know that's all we pretend like that didn't happen or we, you know, the government or at least pretends like, you know, they've, they've, they've not made any mistakes here at all. That's how they present it, but we can go back and look. And so he writes, um, uh, Mr. Mead writes, what do you think? Personally, I believe that online church and lockdown has had far more costs than benefits, but he does write about the benefits. If we had to do it again, what would we do differently? And are we now happy to switch to online church, whatever reason is given for the future lockdowns? I mean, for whatever reason, are we just going to do it? He then asked the question, are we really settled with the idea that the authorities can mandate what we do as a church, who we meet with, what we wear, etc.? Is the plan to do what is commanded or what is culturally popular, whatever the reason? Or are we making different plans to handle what may still lie ahead of us? Whatever your perspective, it is vital that we all take stock and evaluate. And I think that is a wise uh, statement. Exactly. And I would suggest that we also need to take a long view because the question will happen again if if we assume that something like this, uh, which – a hundred years ago, which was um, the Spanish flu, as it was called then, uh, seemed to have the same kind of effect in the church and the culture, um, uh, and it was worldwide. It was a pandemic, uh, so um, maybe it's a, a hundred-year thing that comes up. Well, in the Middle Ages, they um, they had issues like this over and over again: uh, plagues. You know, the, the the bubonic plague in the 1300s, you know, killed one third of the population in Western Europe. Uh, so sometimes getting a perspective is by saying, let's look at history and when have plagues happened or these kinds of pandemics and uh, how the church responded and get some. It, it's not just us. It's, you know, the whole church. Uh, there's an article right now on the Equal Report that's run started running today. So you can go to the EquilaReport.com and right there on the front, it talks about the Black Plague and the things we can learn from it. And it's a really interesting um, perspective from history that at least we can add to the catalog of things that you, we need to, uh, con, you know, have a wider, longer, long view on things. The um, all right, then the next one it takes us into a more deeper the- theological vein. I think as a pastor, I've been asked this question any uh, a number of times. And that is the title is entitled, How Will the People in Heaven View Hell? Uh, the um, perspective that this uh, that we're given here by Amy Hall, and she writes this article, says, um, you know, she points first to Revelation 19, 1 through 6 as, first of all, changing our perspective and making sure that we have a sort of a heavenly perspective on these things. And so then she concludes by saying, here is the direct answer. Those in heaven praise God when they see his judgments against evil. Uh, We will praise him for fulfilling his role as the perfect judge. Uh, Justice is good. It is desirable. It causes us to worship. 
and the Revelation passage above Revelation 19, uh, 19, 1 through 6, we see an example of that. In fact, if you read the Psalms, well, looking at, for examples of God being praised for his judgment against evil, you might be surprised by how often you run into it. So from, quotes then from Romans uh, 3, 5, our, our righteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God when he inflicts his wrath against it. Uh, according to Romans 3, 5. So the point is that we uh, need to realize that the focus that we have in heaven is going to be so focused on God, and we'll see his perfections, his glory, and so overwhelmed by that, that it won't be something that we uh, will get stuck on uh, in heaven. Uh, not that maybe God will let us see it, maybe he won't, but the, the orientation uh, is not going to be, you know, we're thinking it so much in an earthly fashion uh, with our emotions, our feelings about how uh, justice is done and how the evil that's here and what what people need uh, in, um, because of how they're acting. They just they need to, to be in jail. They need to be locked up and all that. Uh, when we get to having God's justice is perfect because he's perfect. And we will just be amazed when we see that. Uh, how wonderful it really is. So we just need to, um, it's a good good article that, again, teaches and good theology that helps us answer the question, ask the question correctly, and then view it with a good answer. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a good article. It's a good question. Uh, but what I, I landed on this, look, in heaven, there is no temptation to virtue signal about fake moral outrage that, you know, you're in heaven and someone else is in hell. It, right. it, and it, 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 there's no virtue signaling. OK. And uh, it, and and what's what it is something to really, truly contemplate. But, um, you know, God's judgments are righteous. And I think the only question that that we will have is why me? Why am I did did did, did God will for me to, you know, did why did he fordain me? Why did he choose me? Um, and, and it's only by his grace. Because, we, you know, if you do subscribe to the, the Lazarus version um, where you've got Lazarus in the bosom of Abraham looking back at the at the rich guy and, uh, you know, he says, look, I mean, uh, we would we're not going to go back. I mean, they've got Moses and the prophets. And if they don't believe Moses and the prophets, then they're not going to believe somebody, you know, that's back mm-hmm. from the dead. Um, you know, that that image right there is is uh, is is interesting and, in, in, you know, in the in the context of this article, but yeah, I think it's, it's all going to be just totally overwhelmed that we deserve to be where the rich guy is. And, and yet, you know, that was our justice. If God was, was just, we would be over there in on the hell side and we're not. And exactly. And it's, uh, I think also put this, the question that that raises about how we perceive, perceive things, especially when we're in the presence of God and we have that, you know, finally, without the problem of filter of sin, now we see it completely before God with along with Johnny Erickson's uh, title um, and how she handled it, that uh, God is at work uh, and he does use his good uh, and we uh, and we learn from it uh, and and we begin to understand that his plan ultimately is good. We as human beings struggle with that because of just our, our fallenness for one thing. And uh, so these two together can sort of help as you're going through a difficult period, uh, a, a dark night of the soul kind of thing that'll be helpful 
uh, for you to uh, just meditate on these uh, these truths. So, uh, and that brings then to something that Tim Chalice um, has um, written about the, the song I sing in the darkness, and he turns to a, a very familiar uh, a psalm, which is Psalm 23. Uh, he says, uh, no work of art is more beautiful, more valuable, more irreplaceable than the 23rd Psalm. It stood, it has stood the, uh, through the ages as a work of art more exquisite than the night watch, more thoughtless than the Mona Lisa, more thought provoking than starry night. The lines of the great poets cannot match its imagery. The world's words of greatest theologians is profoundly, uh, theologians is profundity. Credentialed academics may wrestle with it, yet young children can understand it. So he says uh, this is a psalm that God has given, and it's uh, uh, many of uh, much of God's word is, of course, helpful for this, but it's especially um, beneficial uh, to us. And so he talks about the psalm dries more eye, crying eyes, more drooping hands, and strengthens more weakened knees than any man or angel. Uh, and so that he walks through to show how that and through his own experience and having lost his son uh, just a little over a year ago, uh, how the Lord has blessed him through that word. So letting the word itself, breathing its atmosphere, wash over you uh, and just uh, just saturate you with that truth. And uh, so it goes along with what we've talked about with those other two articles as well. So what song do I sing most in the night is basically uh, and then darkness. Uh, Psalm 23, uh, something to really meditate upon. Yeah, you know, with this article compared to the other ones that are on the same topic, really, I think the theme for this week's top 10, Dominic, is that God is faithful. Amen. I think that's a, exactly uh, and I, I love that uh, that you would you know summarize it that way because I think that's uh, good. Be, which, which, by the way, you know we say we assume the top ten, you know, just the title and maybe the little tease uh, statement then is what attracts somebody as they're saying, should I read this article? Uh, because you could read through it basically, and uh, you know the front page just has the title, the uh, little tease, and a little paragraph. And maybe that's enough and that's all you need. Then you go on to something else. You don't click on it, but something will capture your attention. You click on it and we get our top 10 of the week. And so that maybe in this season of time, we have uh, many who are struggling with issues. I think it's true all the time, but perhaps this week the there was a special uh, emphasis of people who were just saying, asking good questions, and need to find their hope and confidence in God himself. The last comes in with another basically covenantal uh, hope that we have, and that is uh, called Covenantal Baptism. It's a book written, it's about a book, uh, it's, it's a brief overview, actually a, an excerpt from a chapter from J, uh, Jason Helopoulos, who is pastor of the um, University um, Reformed Church in East Lansing, Michigan. Uh, not too far from the campus of uh, Michigan State, the <clears throat> and um, it's he wrote this uh, book that's put out by Presbyterian Reformed, 
Uh, our beliefs regarding baptism inform our parenting, our expectation of our covenantal children, and even what the church with the church we may attend and join. So it's it's not a big book. It's not it, he he's speaking pastorally. He talks about it uh, from a number of different angles as to why it's important when we um, first of all why we baptize children as covenant children, and why that's an important uh, part of the. Um, uh, covenantal theology, uh, and then he also explores and teases out the things that are uh, helpful in the book. So there's one uh, chapter that is um, it, it, this is excerpted from the actually from the introduction, in which um, Jason uh, speaks of it uh, and shows you know the hope that what what God teaches uh, about the importance of uh, covenant baptism. Uh, he one of quotes here, if God counts children as members of the covenant community who are to receive his sign and seal of covenant, then those who neglect covenantal baptism prevent covenant children from receiving God's uh, w- one of God's chief means of grace for their lives and the life of the church. Uh, these practical theological implications are why the discussion about baptism is not idle theological discourse. So just encourage you uh, to get it. It's uh, just been uh, published. The release date was just a week ago uh, on September 22nd. And uh, we uh, were able to get a excerpt from it to uh, highlight it to, because it's a question that um, many people ask. And even those who are grown up in a covenantal Presbyterian reform setting uh, still need to be reminded as to, you know, why we do it. What's the importance of it? It's not just, uh, an idle, uh, cute ceremony, but it's something that has great import as a means of grace for the child, for the, the parents, as well as for the church. Yeah, uh, he writes, baptism is, is a secondary doctrine, yet it's a significant doctrine. Our beliefs regarding baptism inform our parenting, our expectations of our covenant children, and even what church we attend and join. Uh, anyway, it's an interesting article, for sure. Yeah. Good book to get, uh, so I commend that we commend it to you. Well, Paul, it's come to the end of our top 10, and yes, we sir. encourage our listeners to go to, to the Quill Report uh, and to read articles even ahead of time. Uh, tomorrow, uh, Tuesday, uh, the 28th of uh, September, the article, the top 10 will be coming to your box. If you don't receive that, uh, the newsletter, it's free. Just uh, go to the equilreport.com and Click on the free subscription button the icon that's there and uh, you fill out uh, two, three lines and you will be receiving it. And we have many thousands of folks who do and uh, we appreciate all those that read uh, the full report. So if you don't go daily, at least once a week, you'll be brought up to date. And it's a joy to serve, have this service to the church with a variety of articles of uh, theological and uh, biblical uh, cultural, uh, ecclesiastical, personal, and so many other ways that, uh, you know, just gives, keeps you informed as to what's happening in the life of the church. And Paul, thank you for all that you do in uh, making this program happen. 